In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Today we explore one of the most iconic historical stories in the Bible, the miraculous fall of Jericho's walls. In this chapter, we witness Joshua's divine strategy for conquering this formidable city. The Israelites, led by priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, march around Jericho for seven days while trumpets sound, and on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho dramatically collapse, and the city is taken according to God's will. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, September 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, my guest to help us unpack Joshua 6 and the tumbling walls of Jericho is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Tice. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, it's always great to have you on the show, and today is no exception, especially with our our exciting text today, which is extremely familiar to, I think, just about anybody who's ever been in Sunday school. It's, it's one of those fascinating stories. It's got all the elements of the, uh, the miracle, the people involved, the sound, the sights, and then the rescue of, of the one who had helped the spies and there's all kinds of marvelous things in the event that have been introduced earlier in, in Joshua's record. But uh, this particular one is the, the one that still has archaeological impact today that can be verified in a variety of ways. Ooh, that'll be interesting to hear about, too. Well, I tell you what, we can go ahead and get started, but we should start with prayer. And I invite you to lead us in that prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty and gracious Lord, you give to us good gifts. We thank you for the blessing you pour out upon us each day. Frequently, as we receive them, we forget to say thank you. And yet you continue to give because it is your nature to give us good things. Lord, we ask you bless our study today as we look at the good things you had given to the people of Israel in the wilderness, the good things you gave them as they entered into the land at the Jordan River. And now today we see you giving them victory over an enemy without military power, but by your miraculous work. In the same way, our Savior Jesus defeated Satan for us, not with a military army, not with the power of human weapons, but by his righteousness. Bless us as we share that gift of righteousness through the word and bless it in us as we walk in faith. Help others to see in Jesus' message the invitation of the Prince of Peace, the Lord of the armies of heaven, to come to him and rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, okay, here we are at Jericho. It's been building up for quite a while. In our last chapter, verse 13, it says that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. 
Joshua fell to his face on the earth and worshipped him, and he said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So we have this angel of Yahweh. We have this commander of Yahweh's armies. Um, I guess we could debate a little bit on whether that's the pre-incarnate Christ or not. I think so, because he's standing on holy ground. But that is mm-hmm. what precedes our text for today. Anything else the people should know before we read in read into chapter six? Well, the people the people have been in the the promised land for some time now. When they had crossed over the Jordan, as we read recently, uh, the water stopped. It piled up at the back, and then after the priests came out, the the flood waters returned. The whole plain got flooded, and the manna stopped. And so what we have here is a very clear statement that you're not going back to the wilderness. You're not leaving. The manna has stopped. And so God's statement to his people is, now you eat the fruit of the land as I promised before you left Egypt to your ancestors, that this would be the land I gave to their descendants. So God is completing a long-term promise here. And what we're dealing with is the recognition that the people don't know what we know. They haven't seen what we've seen in Scripture. So we have historical hindsight. They don't. So they're following the, the lead of, Jer- of Joshua, Yeshua, the promised one to follow Moses, um, not raised up as a prophet like him, but one who was raised up to lead God's people. So we're seeing that, that God is entrusting the care of his people once again to a leader, in this case, Joshua. And when the people follow Joshua's instructions from Yahweh, things go well. And the next yeah. chapter, you get into that when you get to AI, we won't go there now. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. They're going to they're going to mess up. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, probably next time, Monday. But for now, we are at chapter six. I'm going to start with verse one and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of Yahweh, the ark of the Lord. Let's stop there at the end of seven. So very familiar text here. Um, again, as I said, most everybody who's been in Sunday school has heard this story and might even remember some of these details. Uh, but I think we should go through them, right? Maybe maybe reveal a little bit what the Sunday school teacher did not tell you as we mm-hmm. go through this text. But um, yeah, so God says, look. They're all hiding because of you. They're all hiding. They're they're shut in, shut out. They've heard about you, and even Rahab alluded to that. Um, I've given them into your hand. 
But instead of telling them, so just go take it, he gives them these explicit instructions, kind of odd instructions on how to take it. Um, I guess that's sort of the first question. Why? Why not just sort of let them run in and do whatever they want if God's going to give it to them anyway? Right. Well, I think there, there are a couple of factors involved there. One of them is it's not a standard military operation in the sense that it's not a siege. They're not attacking. Sieges uh, were common in ancient warfare for walled cities. Um, and when a siege was set up, you began, first of all, by encircling the city and then cutting off the supply of food going in. And then you would often begin to build ramparts or trenches around it to protect you from any attack coming from the inside, and then gradually find a way to breach the walls. What's going to happen here is breaching of the walls won't occur. The walls collapse straight down is what we're told. Um, and when they fall down, they'll fall down flat on themselves. They don't fall outward. Reminds me of a, of a demolition uh, scene I've watched mm. various times where people plant dynamite, uh, uh, explosive charges at key points inside of a building that needs to be collapsed, but it can't fall outward because it will damage other buildings, fall into the street, whatever. So that you've perhaps seen these these uh, videotapes, or perhaps you've actually watched the event yourself. When the, the charges are set off, then it falls straight down. So what God is telling them through Joshua is that he's going to cause the walls to fall in a distinct way they need to follow his instruction, and he uses a past tense verb, I have given it to you. Not you'll That's get it. an important detail. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this, this uh, prophetic perfect, if you will. And, and the other thing that struck me, and it's very early, uh, right away in, in chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2, and Yahweh speaks to Joshua directly. Now we're told he spoke to Moses face to face, and he never spoke to anyone else that way. And yet he communicates directly with Joshua, just as you mentioned, when Joshua saw the, the prince of the armies of Yahweh. Uh, it was a direct communication. In this case, Yahweh is speaking directly to Joshua. And, and there's no go between here. And so he's, he's giving specific instructions. And this is the, the God who is the God of Joshua. Earlier in the book, the people all said, we believe your God, Yahweh, has given you and we will follow you. And, and may your God bless you in what you do. The statement of, of acceptance that Joshua's God is the God of the people of Israel, and also that he has a personal relationship with him. So we see that repeated here in this very first section. And then the instructions. Six days, we're going to have you walk around it. And all the men of war going around the city once. Now, we heard earlier in Joshua that those numbered 40,000, give or take, was the number we were given. Now, you can debate whether that's just the two and a half tribes from the east side of the Jordan or if it's all of them, but it's that's a large army. But the point is, the crowd that's marching after the priests come is a significant group. Seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns. This is the shofar, and that's significant. That's not the the silver trumpets that we heard about in, in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, where Moses is instructing the people, to make these silver trumpets that then will be used for worship and special calls to come to God's house. This is the shofar, the ram's horn, which was used on a regular basis to encourage an ounce call, etc. Then on the seventh day, you march around seven times. And so we have this seven times seven, um, if you will, 
in in a somewhat of a foretaste of of what's coming in the New Testament. Most importantly, though, this is the day that things are different. And then when you hear the sound of the trumpet, people give a loud shout. The walls will fall again straight down on themselves. The people shall go up everyone straight before him, which is the instructions for how to enter the city. You don't go around to where the gate was. You just go straight in. And whatever you come across, the the instructions later will be uh, you'll take care of what you find there. But everyone goes straight in, straight to the wall. Um, so it's a instant. I'm I'm reminded of, of pictures of ant colonies where suddenly all the ants rush the middle of the, the ant hill, so to speak. And uh, so they're taking up the Ark of the Covenant. The seven priests with the trumpets go before the Ark of Yahweh. And then he says to the people, go forward, march around the city. The armed men go before the Ark of Yahweh, but the armed men never attack until the wall falls down. That's the instruction. So, so again, you know, this is the method by which God has them conquer this city or take possession of this city. You talked about the shofar. Um, there are three different terms for horns or trumpets, the keren, the shofar, the yovel. Um, the shofar is the one mentioned here, right, as you talked about. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But this uh, – uh, and then, of course, the walls fall flat, and we have historical evidence for this. Not that we need it, but it's always nice when we have some uh, ar- archaeological evidence to back it up. But I, I'm still a little confused. Like, how would we explain to someone why God gives them these specific instructions? Is it to see that they will follow his instructions? Of course, he knows because he's God. Is it to mm-hmm. encourage them to remind or remember that God is the one who is victorious? I, I think the primary focus here is this is not military standard procedure. Now, granted, none of these people have been trained in military fighting, although one of the reasons the Lord allows the Canaanites to remain among them for a period of time is that they need to learn warfare, and so they learn it that way. But this is this is the beginning of the attack inside the land of promise across the Jordan, and no human sword will breach the wall. No human effort will knock down the gate. Yahweh will be the one that opens the way before them. And this is what he's always said, I will go before you. And, and so the, the instructions are specifically to remind the people that as it does happen, that they didn't do it, God did it for them. And this is always important for you and for me, just as it was for the Israelites, to remember that the Lord does it his way by his plan. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when Jesus comes and defeats Satan, he says, if I asked my father, he'd give me 12 legions of angels. But that's not what I'm here to do. I'm doing it a different way. And in this case, the Lord is teaching them that he will be their faithful leader. And and if they follow his instruction, the enemy falls before them. Well, so far we've just received the instruction from Yahweh. Why don't we see how it goes, starting with verse 12. Uh, pardon me, verse 8. And, jo- and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns went before Yahweh— Uh, before Yahweh, went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. 
Uh, pardon me, I lost my place. Here we go. <laughs> then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp, and they spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of Yahweh, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and so they did for six days. I'm not going to get into the seventh day just yet, but we see here they're following the instructions of Yahweh and the instructions mm-hmm. of Joshua. But I'm just trying to picture this in my head because now if you are inside the walls of Jericho, you're already terrified. You've heard about their God's Mm -hmm. activity in the wilderness in Egypt. You've probably heard how he stopped the waters of the Jordan recently. And here they are, and all you see is just the whole people. And this is a ton of people. This isn't like, you know, 40 people. They encircle the whole city in silence. And then, of course, the trumpets mm-hmm. are blown. But that would be a, just an odd, eerie sight if just from the perspective of those who were in Jericho. I, I think I would be extra terrified. I would say, why not you? Why don't you just attack and get it done with? Yeah, well, this is this is what the the Lord is doing. He is teaching both His people and the Canaanites, the people of Jericho, that He is the one in charge. And if I can use the word psychological warfare. Scripture doesn't use sure. it, so I'm, sure. you know, applying what's not there. Uh, the Lord is emphatically teaching that He does things His own way, and that when He decides to do something, it will work. It may not work in the immediate time people want it to, and that's part of the seven days, in my opinion, anyway. Is that the people must patiently wait for the wall to fall down, following God's instruction, rather than saying, "Okay, right now it'll happen." And you know, most of us have that challenge that we want God to do it right now, and and the Lord has a plan. And if you and I don't fully know what the plan is, part of the challenge is to wait for him to accomplish it. Now, in this case, Joshua tells the people ahead of time, this is how we're going to do it. And the sight and the sound uh, of the trumpets and the people walking around outside Jericho, as you mentioned, would terrify the the citizens of Jericho. But it would also implant deeply in the, the minds, especially of the younger ones, children in particular, that God did this miraculous thing. And then they go back at, at night to the camp. Once they get to the camp, then they probably were talking and saying, what's going on? Uh, what, how are we doing? What's, what's the purpose? Did you notice? And the, the focus that jumped out at me is that the armed men uh, were in front, the seven priests with the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh went forward before the Ark of the Covenant. Notice that, that Joshua's text here says that Yahweh was present in the circling march. He mm. was there. And, and that, that phrase, they went before Yahweh with their trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh following them. So Yahweh's physical presence is, is represented by the Ark, but in this case, we might be able to say that the, the pillar of fire and cloud that led them in the wilderness no longer leads them. But the Lord is still present right there. And, right. and that's important. Yeah. Well, and I thought um, about the impatience. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I thought about the impatience of the folks within the walls of the city, just the anxiety and just like, come on, get it over with. You brought up 
perhaps the impatience of the people themselves. So even though Joshua told them this is how it's going to play out, I'm certain mm -hmm. that didn't quell the more uh, ambitious alpha males, military-minded of them to say, yep. no, we should just do this. We should just go in. This is dumb. This is We shouldn't be walking around looking silly. We should just go in and fight these people. God, always, you always given it to us. Why don't we just go take it? So I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. There's a lot of teaching of patience and a reminder of who's in charge going on here, both inside the walls and outside the walls of the city. Yep. And and then this this comment at the very end of this section, the second day they marched around the city once, returned to the camp. For six days, they did this exact same thing. And of course, from inside the city, the, the people of Israel know that these are the instructions, but the people in Jericho are saying, what are they doing today? That's just what they did yesterday. What are they doing? Aren't they ever going to do anything different? And building more tension. The other thing that ran through my mind, and I don't have anything other than the promise that the spies gave to Rahab, that you and your household and your family members and everyone inside your building, everyone inside mm -hmm. your house will be spared. My question is, during this time, were any people being drawn to rescue in the house of Rahab was the God who desires not the death of the sinner, but that he repent using those six days of the marching to rescue others who would follow him. I don't know. Scripture never says anywhere else right. that anybody was involved. But, you know, thinking about Noah building the ark and preaching for about 100 years, I, I, I can't help but think, knowing the nature of the way God's worked with us and people through the centuries, that he is patiently waiting for others to turn to him. Now, again, that's me applying my understanding of theology and the nature of God to a text that doesn't mention it. Yeah, but, but I think that makes Yeah, but I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, perhaps it's just time to get, you know, a Rahab's people out. Maybe it's time to encourage others to follow. Maybe it's time, you know, that patiently waiting that all might be saved. There's something into it there too. And, of course, there's also symbolism, or at least I, I assume there is, when it comes to the six days, this sort of hexameron, right? We have the six mm -hmm. days of creation, and now we have this six days, and on the seventh yeah. day, there will be no resting. There will be a striking, but still, uh, I, you know, that, that week long, mm -hmm. obviously, is something that's we've seen over and over in the Scriptures. Yes, and this is a constant reminder in, in scriptural texts that God is at work, and on the seventh day, God has completed what he planned. Now everything's done. In this case, it will be the, the siege will be done, and, and the people will enter the city. Um, and, you know, the, the, the seventh day of creation, the Lord ceased from his work. Everything was good. And he'll cease from the attack on the seventh day by the blowing of the trumpet. But it will be a different thing. It's not a day of rest for anybody. And this is, I think, important for you and me to remember that there's no Sabbath event in this event. There's no Sabbath. Mm, People right. are marching for six days and on the seventh day they march. So they don't take a day off. They march around the city once, each of those six days on the seventh day. Did they start on Sunday? Did they start on Tuesday? Either way you do it, there's no Sabbath rest right. in this event. So and why do you that's, think that's, uh, is there some significance there, you think? I mean, that is interesting. I hadn't thought yeah. of it. 
Yeah. No, I think I think the significance is that they have the seven horns being blown by the seven priests. The Ark of the Covenant is with them. And on the seventh day, they are doing no work. God is destroying the walls. They are then going in and, and doing the swift, certain judgment of Yahweh on those who have opposed him. And this judgment is something that God carries out through them so that Yahweh is at work on the seventh day through the people of Israel. Therefore, they are doing his work, and if he commands them to do it on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, then they can indeed work on a seventh day because God said to do it. I think that this, in a very indirect way, points ahead to Jesus healing the sick and destroying the work of Satan on the Sabbath in the New Testament. And and so we see that the work of God counteracting Satan and his work on the Sabbath is perfectly legitimate. And as pastors who work on Sundays, you and I recognize that, yeah, this is the work of the Lord, and so it's good to do it on on the seventh or the Sabbath day, Um, and and ought not feel any guilt that we, technically speaking, work on the day of rest, because it's the work of God to overcome Satan and his power that goes on through the church, the word, the sacraments, and worship on Sundays. So therefore, for the pastors to work, is consistent with what the people of Israel are doing here at Jericho. Right. Well, and and I want to save uh, the seventh day till after we get back from the break. But one thing that pops up also, just sort of an image of what's going on, is I, I get the sense of sharks circling, right? So, yeah. so yeah, I don't know how big that um, I don't know how big Jericho is. I, I did a little reading, and and some say, well, you know, maybe. Maybe it's about a mile, I don't know, a mile maybe, or a couple miles around. It, does, it doesn't really matter how long mm-hmm. the circumference is, um, unless it was like 100 miles. It, they could do it easily each day, maybe even like yeah. less than an hour. Um, but mm-hmm. still, they look out, and every day it's just circling, circling. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. the reason why I bring that up is because when I have found in my past life and even on occasion today, you find yourself um, needing to repent, but your old sinful nature is just sort of resisting that call. Sometimes you get a sense of God not leaving, not abandoning, not even punishing, but just circling, waiting, <laughs> waiting. And, 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 and it's really the patience here is one, and it's hard, it's weird to talk about this in the context of them about to conquer a town or a, a city, but it's one of love. It's one of God saying, look, we are going to attack. You don't know what day mm-hmm. it is. They didn't know what day it was going to be, the people inside. People inside right. didn't know. You don't know when the attack may come. But until then, you know, here's here's a chance, but don't don't blow this chance. You know, tomorrow you don't you're not promised tomorrow. Tomorrow we might get up and run right in. So there really is a a spiritual sense of you don't know what tomorrow brings, so act today and 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 that's certainly a message that christian preachers of of all flavors have been giving uh since christ first came and said no one knows the day nor the hour mm-hmm. yeah and this is the 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 recognition that we have a god who is patient with us not slow in the way that we count slowness but not wanting anyone to perish and and uh i tend to be an impatient person um, and, you know, the, the prayer for the impatient person is, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And and as I think about 
this idea that, that God is always at work even when you and I don't see it. And this is part of the, the life of faith. The Lord has promised he will do things. He hasn't given us the time schedule. Uh, the Lord is coming back. When? I don't know. So be ready at any time. But as you're, as you're mentioning, the Lord is patient with us as well. So he, he doesn't abandon us. He does not leave us or forsake us. So we can trust him to, to be around when we need him. Well, I don't want to strain my honored guest's patience, nor yours at home, but you're all going to have to wait for the break to be over before we continue. So, folks, don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Folks, I hope you enjoyed that short break. Did you have a chance to top up that cup of coffee or maybe just listen to the great messages? Well, it's time to dive right back into the Bible, but before I do, I just want to say thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to God's Word with us today, right? No matter when you're joining us, perhaps you're listening right now live as I say these words, or maybe you'll be catching up later on your favorite podcasting app or KFUO.org or the KFUO radio app. It doesn't matter. You know what, though? I also like to hear from you. So have questions about something we talk about? Maybe you disagree. Ooh, that'd be okay. Shoot me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. Even if you want to reach out to my guest, you can do that through me. I always pass the messages along. And now... Back to the Bible, because we've been very patient, waiting for those walls to come down. We've waited six and a half chapters, and now we're finally there. Let's look at verse 15 and following. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them uh, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword." But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who are with who all who belong to her as you swore to her. Now we're going to pause right there. So there's plenty more to come, but they've done what they were told. The things happened just as God had predicted and they went in. Um, But there's a lot of talk here about the things devoted for destruction Um, Not just because I've read ahead, even without reading ahead, you kind of start to think, wait a minute, that might come up again. Yeah, this is this is a recurring topic throughout the the invasion of of, uh, Canaan by the Israelites that the Lord repeatedly says to them. And I've had people ask me this question. and Some are bothered by it, that the Lord says, destroy everything, kill all living things in this town, in this area. And a lot of people have asked me, well, how can a loving God authorize this kind of behavior? And and as humans, we use uh, reason, we use human intellect, and and we try to, I'm going to use the term rationalize or excuse this behavior. But God doesn't need an excuse for what he chooses to do. And that's our real problem as humans. Mm -hmm. Um, We want God to be accountable to us, and we, we fail to recognize that we're entirely accountable to him. And and what he is doing is he is fulfilling his promise uh, that if these people, and keeping in mind that there was a time when many people in this region, uh, go back to Abraham, for instance, knew the true God, the prince uh, of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, who was priest in Jerusalem as well. He knew the true God. So the true God's not been without witness in this territory. It's been 400 years since the Israelites went to Israel, to Egypt rather, but the people who worshiped the true God in that area, there were still some there. Now, how many? We don't know. And the Lord has now chosen a nation to be the ones carrying the promise of the Savior. But before he chose the family of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, there were other worshipers of the true God. Uh, the father-in-law of Moses worships the true God. So this this idea that well, you know, these people never had a chance, is, is mis- I would call it misinformed. Uh, the true God had left witnesses to his existence throughout the region. But when the, the parents fail to teach the children, or the children reject what the parents give, the book of Proverbs talks about that too, um, God is not accountable for that. And, and this is now where we see the Lord saying, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. I won't offer my worship to graven idols. And this comes later, especially in the writings of Isaiah. But, but the Lord is using the Israelites as his agent of judgment, just as later he will use the Babylonians as his agent of judgment on the people of Israel, although they worship a false god. So that part of what we're seeing here with this devoted to destruction is God saying, you shall not prosper on the wickedness of others, you shall prosper because I give into your hand these things. And by the way, he's promised he's going to give them the physical things of Israel, the houses, the wells, the vineyards, the orchards, all the things that they didn't plant, they didn't build, they didn't dig. They'll live in them, they'll eat from them, they'll enjoy them. 
but these cities are to be destroyed, and the people worshiping false gods in them are to be removed, just like you and I kill a virus whenever we can. And that's part of what's going on here is the removal of the the virus and teaching the people of Israel that turning from the true God is disastrous. It reminds me a little bit of Abraham and Sarah, right? Because God promises them everything, and yet in their impatience, Mm -hmm. they try to take things into their own hands. Well, imagine being promised everything, but then being told, well, listen, though, you can't just sort of start looting. You know, this stuff is going to be destroyed. Now, the the valuable Mm -hmm. stuff, like the gold and silver, put that in the treasury. It'll be for you, right? That's not God taking the money. He doesn't care, but he's taking the valuable things for them. But these other things, you know, just just destroy it if I tell you to destroy it. And so you imagine, and we don't have to imagine once we get to the next chapter, but you imagine that there are some people who are like, well, you know, look at that vase or look at that you know, bar of gold or look at that cloak or look at that. Come on, I can't destroy. This is good fabric. Is that, is that you know, real donkey? It's really good. <laughs> no. So, you know, it's like they look at it and they go, right. They, they don't want to destroy that. It'd be such a waste. It wouldn't be good stewardship of the things that God has brought into our lives. But God has said, nope destroy it. I'm going to provide for you. So there's a little bit of testing the people to see if they are going to believe what, what God says when he says, I'm going to provide for you. Yeah. And, and the other side of, of what's going on here is the livestock, for instance, that they're going to kill, the Lord will multiply their livestock just as he did for Jacob centuries before. Right. And, you know, the, the deal Jacob had with Laban, you know, solid animals, you get spotted, striped, black, I get. And the Lord causes the increase in the the size of Jacob's herd to show that God's the one blessing them. He's going to do the same thing with the Israelites. And and the thing that jumps out at me right away is that what they found inside the city, they burned. All that was in it except for silver, gold, bronze vessels, and iron. Anything that can be purified by fire. And this is part of the, you know, again, back to Isaiah. He shall purify the sons of Levi, the refiner's fire. These things can all be purified by smelting process of their corruption in worshiping false gods that's been part of the life of the people of Jericho. The other items can't be purified with fire, so they are they are destroyed to remove the stain on the one hand and also then to teach the people that God will provide. And keeping in mind the clothing, for instance— being destroyed was extremely wasteful in the eyes of the people of that culture because clothing was hard to come by. And yet the Lord says, don't take any of that. Only the things that I can purify by fire, which shall go into the Lord's treasury for the good of all the people, not just for one family. And so the, the, the God who clarifies things for his people through his word and purifies us through the word, in this case says, I will do the purifying you follow my instruction. And the same is true for us. And of course, except for Rahab's house. So the, the word here used, the one we say like devoted to destruction, you know, devoted to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. The, the word here is kerem or kerem, and it indicates something like um, being set apart as sacred or, or banned for humans to use or something like that. And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the word haram in, um, Arabic 
is what, say, Arabian or Arabic people or Muslims would say is something that's forbidden, like not kosher. It might be another way. Uh It's hard to describe this. But I think a better way to understand it is this karam. These things are devoted to destruction, but it's not just destruction like to destroy and waste. But if God is the one who wins the battle— well, then the spoils of war belong mm-hmm. to God. <laughs> so so it's it's I think another way to look at it is almost like a I don't know what manner by which they would have destroyed them. Perhaps they would have uh, burned them or just broke them apart. But the point is they're mm-hmm. basically offering them to God. And that's another another thing to remember. And so I, I wonder about our lives today, all the things that are karem, right? This isn't unique to ancient Israel, but it's not unique mm-hmm. to us either. You know. God demands certain things just for his own use. Not that he needs them. It's obviously to teach us. But what kinds of things are not kosher, to use a more modern term, for us today, you think, that would be kind of like this? Things that we shouldn't make use of, but they exist, and really they're for God. Can you think of anything? Well, I, I, part of the things that, that God gives us, and as you said, devoted to God, not for us, he's, he set aside worship of him and receiving honor and glory and and dare i say it even fame um this is one of those challenges uh, we face on a regular basis but uh whenever someone gives me a compliment i say thank you this is a gift from god um because if i begin to claim that it's me then i've taken god's gifts and god's abilities planted in me and, and claimed that they're mine. Now I can hone them and I can sharpen them by practice. But there are certain gifts we you and I have from God, and they're not to be used for our own uh, aggrandizement or even our own financial benefit. Um, and, you know, I would add to that. I would add that to, too. You know, a lot of Christians, you know, strive to give God the credit and pastors, too. And I think sometimes people think it comes off as False humility. I, I know that I have difficulty sometimes taking compliments, and it, it is not a false humility. It's a desire for humility. You know, we know how easy it is for us to get fixated on our own works, especially if they aren't our own works. <laughs> so we we have this. Um, I think a lot of pastors have this aversion to compliments. Now, with that said, I'm going to make it very clear. Please encourage your pastors, right? Don't just think, oh, well, they don't want compliments, so Mm -hmm. I'll never tell them. No, obviously encourage them. But we always have this caveat of, of course, every good and gracious thing comes from above, even if it's through a poor, miserable sinner like us. But yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a lot. I think there's a lot there. And I think you hit it dead on. Perhaps it's not necessarily like, well, we have to uh, take this and burn it so that we can't use it. But there are a lot of things that are reserved to God alone and and worship and praise yeah. and glory. That's certainly among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing I wanted to highlight here, and and I don't want to make too much of it, but I notice how he calls the spies Malak. He calls them messengers. Um, yeah. I just think that's kind of interesting. I mean, who are they messengers to? I thought they were there to scout out information, not deliver a message. Why does he call them Malak, messengers, angels? Well, he, he used them as his messengers to Rahab and her household. Uh, you know, oh, we are yes. here because you have set us aside and, and rescued us. Now the message is you're safe. Yahweh will save you. You can be rescued from the midst of a corrupt and, and doomed people by turning to the Lord of light. And, and I'm reminded of 
the burning of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's prayer to the Lord. You know, if there are 10 righteous, God says, yeah, if there's 10, I'll spare it. And he burned it up, which means there weren't 10. <laughs> and, and in this case, the, the city is preordained for destruction. And yet the, you know, the verse 16 shouts, shout because Yahweh has given you the city. And then everything we're told is that it falls down, but, but Rahab and her household will be saved. And what struck me is that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so Rahab and her family are counted righteous by virtue of their faith, and they had to have it proclaimed directly to them as a promise by those messengers so that they would all be in the right spot to be saved. Only one spot in the town, the wall doesn't collapse, Rahab's house. And so the messenger has to say, here is the safe place. In the midst of destruction, here is where the Lord has promised to meet you. And, of course, my mind takes that directly to the assembly of God's people. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Here I am among you with my word and my gifts. And the sacraments come to us, and the Lord says, here I am. Eat and drink. This is my body, my blood. I'm right here with you. But you only get that in the place God's promised it. You can't make it up on your own. And so the messenger has to bring the message. So I, I think that's a, a big part of why they're called the messengers. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, they brought a message back to the Israelites, but they brought the message to, a, to Rahab's family, that she and her family would be saved by God's mercy. And God is merciful. I, you know, our Calvinist friends might say, well, you know, here's proof that God had already determined that these people would be destroyed. But that's not what he says exactly. What he says is the city's going to be destroyed. And I, I lean towards your understanding of at least part of the delay is, you know, it's not too late. It's not too late. Right. Yeah. You can avoid the you can avoid the bloodshed. You can avoid it. Um, and, and that's yeah. and that's the message to, today. Right. That the one that we deliver, you know, when we do our mm-hmm. our spying out in the world, it's it's to bring the message of, hey, God, God is uh, is is patient toward you, but of course that patience will run out, and for the people of Jericho, the patience has run out, but the spies, the messengers, have kept their word to Rahab. Look at verse twenty three, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. But the uh, let's see here, yeah, twenty three. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua. And his fame was in all the land. Well, Joshua said, cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds Jericho. There's going to be a, a penalty if he tries to do that. Um, if I'm correct in saying, I believe that, well, that exactly happened and came to pass, just as Joshua had said. Yes, yep. that happened during the reign of Ahab, um, a Bethelite. 
rebuilt the city of Jericho. And First Kings 16 tells us that as he was laying its foundations, his firstborn son was dying. And when he erected the gates, his youngest son was dying. And, and then in First Kings, it says, thus fulfilling the message Yahweh delivered through the son of Nun, Joshua. So this, this event takes place. As, as God has promised. And Jericho was destroyed. Everything in it was destroyed. The people in it were all destroyed. Rebuilding it was an insult to God's judgment and in a way could have been seen as an attempt to build a name for yourself. I'm going to build back up this city. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jericho is still in the news. I don't know if you've heard lately, but the um, United Nations uh, UNESCO, Education and Scientific Cultural Organization, wants to uh, declare a World Heritage Site in some of the ruins not far from where the city of Jericho is today, which could very well be the very ruins that were collapsed at this time. Uh, and and that's raised some controversy um, among different different political leaders. But, but the nation that succeeded the people of Jericho, the people of Israel, lost that territory to the, the Babylonian conquest and then Eventually, that whole territory was taken away from the biological descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham remain in that area today. So we're looking at the, a city that, that can be built with stones and violate God's will, but he who builds with living stones builds a, a, a house to to the glory of God, and it's the people of God who are that new house. And the apostles and Christ himself being the foundation and cornerstone, a totally different kind of building process. So when we take a look at, at the concept of building in Scripture, Jesus says, the one who builds his house on my words builds on solid ground, not sandy ground. And so this whole idea of the Lord tears down and then the Lord rebuilds, he has to tear down our sinful pride, bring us to repentance, empty us so that now we see ourselves as nothing, and then he builds us up. And this is part of what's going on here in this chapter with Jericho's destruction. The people of Israel are now going to move forward to take the rest of the land because God has promised it to them, not because they are a great mighty army. In fact, the blunt truth is they're untrained in combat at all. And that's mm. part of the, part of the I'm going to call it irony, uh, of, of the conquest of Cana is that these people came out of Egypt where they've been slaves for 100 plus, you know, 300 plus years, and now they come out and they have to go to war, and they don't have any weapons. Right. Yeah. Or training. That's, that's, you know, yeah. yeah, training. As you go through later on into Joshua, uh, into Judges, and, and, you know, by the time you even get down to, to David, the uh, Philistines have a monopoly on, on uh, metalworking. And so right. the metal that's found in Jericho, God says, We'll keep all this. A, it can be purified by fire, and B, it's a resource you'll need to do the work I'm giving you to do. So down the road, uh, the rebuilding of Jericho causes problems for Heel the Bethelite, but the presence of God with the people is the key issue. So, so the Lord's promise is going to be with his people throughout the conquest of this land, and, of course, then Rahab shows up again in, in the story of, of Ro Ruth and Boaz uh, down the road, um, before before uh, David comes on the scene, so Rahab's with them to this day um, is is an interesting phrase uh, in my mind that uh, she's remained among the people to this day. 
Um, well, who wrote that? We're not sure. Right, but that's true. Rahab, Rahab became part of the people of Israel as the land was conquered, and an ancestor of, of course, David, and then certainly listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. So, yeah, I noticed that they continue to call her or reference her as uh, Rahab the prostitute, and and I think that many modern sensibilities would take objection to that because we also are assuming that she has turned from that way of life post. Yeah. Uh, coming to faith and post-destruction of Jericho, for sure. But um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the identifier isn't an insult to her. It is a oh. it is a, 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 a it's noteworthy of of God's love toward all people, regardless of what they've had to do in their life. And and oftentimes that's what you imagine. You know, somebody like this, this is not what they want to do. Who wants to do that? This is what they had to do or felt they mm-hmm. had to do before they were led to a better life. And so even though they re- reference her as uh, Rahab the prostitute, make no mistake, uh, may perhaps though she should be better known as the, you know, the the ancestor of our Lord Jesus because she certainly has that honor, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm reflecting on you talking about how, you know, building up the city of Jericho would be like questioning God and and trying to undo what he's done and certainly that is the case, but you know, in our baptism, he tears us down. He rem- he kills us. He destroys the old self and rises in its place a new self. And so, when we go in our lives as Christians and we attempt to continue in our sins, though God has called us away from them and forgiven us, I feel like it's it's like trying to rebuild our sinful lives on the ruins that He's already done away with as if he was wrong in forgiving us. And so that makes it even more that scary when we go out and yeah. we willfully sin against God. Yeah, and, and the, the book of Hebrews and the epistles of James both warn against that kind of willful, intentional sinning and the, the grave danger it puts us in, in being restored to the Lord. Um, you, you, When one chooses to put themselves outside of God's will, and again, intentionally sinning, you're inviting Satan to move back in, and and that's that's a yeah. disastrous thing. the The Lord's promise is that He'll be with us, and if we continue in the Word, He gives us, as Paul says in Ephesians six, you know, He gives us the, the equipment for spiritual battle. The Word of of God being the sword, the shield of faith. Uh, you know, the the whole understanding that God does arm His people. He doesn't arm them in the military sense. He arms us with spiritual gifts. And as I look at the, the the fight of Jericho, the armed men went first, then the horns being blown by the priests, then the Ark of the Covenant, then the rear guard, and then the crowd of people who were not armed. Right. The group that went in was not the armed group per se. They did go into the city, but the armed men went in and, and did the killing. But the Lord... The Lord who arms you and me gives us that which can defeat Satan uh, with the power of his word, the power of, of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. And that th- that is the thing that conquers Satan. Well, and I think that's where we're going to have to end it, and it's on a good word for sure. Thank you, Pastor. This is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. God's blessings with you and the, the folks in your parish as well. Thank you, brother. Uh, Folks, on Monday when we come back is chapter 7. After that miraculous victory at Jericho, the Israelites Israelites, are filled with confidence. But things take a sudden turn. This chapter that we're going to cover 
reveals the story of Achan or Achan, who disobeyed God's command by taking forbidden plunder from Jericho. And he listen, he suffers the consequences, but it's quite the story getting there. That's what we're going to talk about on Monday. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.